Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here. I am your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And if you're new to the show, we're just thrilled to have you and uh, hope if you're interested in discovering your family's past and their deep, dark secrets, you stick around because we've got all kinds of great stories, discoveries that people make, and how to do these things. That's what we do here on the show. And I've got a great guest for you today. His name is Robert Charles Anderson. He's an iconic figure in family history research because he's the guy behind an incredible series of books called The Great Migration. And uh, this covers the period from 1620 when the Mayflower showed up till 1640 when things really slowed down. And he's going to be talking about that with me coming up in a little bit. And his new book out called Puritan Pedigrees, The Deep Roots of the Great Migration to New England. So this will kind of give you the whys of why your ancestors came to uh, North America back then. Hey, congratulations to my good friend Nathan Dylan Goodwin from uh, England. He's written another great book. And if you're not familiar with him, he writes novels that are mysteries based on genealogical research. They're very clever. They're a lot of fun. He's written a short prequel to his book called Hiding the Past. It's called The Asylum. There is a link on his website, which makes the book available for free. So you go to NathanDylanGoodwin.com and you can get it. And I'm sure you will absolutely enjoy it. Right now, let's check in with Boston and talk to my good friend, David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and American Ancestors. Org. Hello, David. Hello, and I see that you've got my good friend and mentor, Robert Charles Anderson, on this week, so I'm thrilled to hear that interview. I hope that will go well. Oh, it will. He's a Excellent. good man, and, and uh, he's got some great stories to tell. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. Well, let's start off with our family history news with a story that kind of rings true. Well, if you've ever played the drums, you may have heard of Zildazen, which is a Massachusetts-based company with older origins. This company started back in 1623 in Istanbul, Turkey, and if you've ever played the drums, look closely at the symbols with the Zildazen on it. It has a long family history, which extends into Massachusetts later on. Isn't that crazy? They started in 1623. They've had 14 generations of this family keep making them. And as I understand it, the uh, the guy who's kind of coming up in the family ranks with this says, look, you get this little piece of 400 years, don't screw it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, DNA never ceases to amaze me, Fish, and I'll tell you this new story, which is also on Extreme Genes, about the genetic legacy of the Spanish Inquisition with the people that ended up in Latin America in the New World. It's fascinating that DNA is uncovering the past of people that, well, are descendants from those who had perished during the Spanish Inquisition, these Sephardic Jews from well over 500 years ago. And, you know, there was rumors about this for years because apparently there were some customs that were carrying on in Latin America, and people were saying, well, that's Jewish. They must come from the Jews from the Spanish Inquisition. And people were saying, oh, they're reading way too much into it. And now the DNA has come out and shown that that is absolutely the case. It's amazing. And like I say, every time I get a new cousin match, I'm hoping to uncover a piece of a past. But to uncover an entire origin yeah. of people is amazing. <laughs> it amazing. is. It's just it never stops to amaze, right? Well, you know, and even without DNA, people are finding amazing things. Like our gentleman, Gabriel Walensky, who's from Ottawa, Canada, who discovered uh, while doing a genealogy on his family after a family reunion that there was a website that had information on his family being deported to a death 
death camp out near Belarus in 1942, and he's been able to research his family. More and more of these type of databases, the Nazis kept extensive records, and for Jewish Americans, or in this case Jewish Canadians, or anybody who had, had family that was lost or survived the Holocaust, they were able to find these online databases to be useful. And this one is budenarchive.de, so B-U-N-D-E-S-A-R-C-H-I-V.de, and of course you can find this on extreme genes under news. Isn't that amazing? And you know, they actually found the train schedules for these people and they know what train they went on, when it left, from where, and they can tie all this story together so they know the tragic story of their family members that they lost in the Holocaust. Unbelievable. It really is. I'll tell you, I'm on eBay all the time as well as you fish. And I can tell you that this lady in Ireland spending $1,000 found quite a prize. How about a photo album that had members of Jane Austen's family and also people that were characters in her book? She bought this album of 1860s era photography, and it's probably worth a hundred times what she paid for it. <laughs> it could be. And it's her hobby to find these old photo albums and then research the people that are in them. And you could imagine her shock at the plethora of family photographs of people tied to Jane Austen. Crazy. Unbelievable. Well, this week's blogger spotlight shines on Michael Lee Stills, who has a blog at missingroots.com. He talks a lot about wiki trees, but he also talks about and is actively involved with 52 Ancestors in 52 Weeks Challenge. Our good friend Amy Johnson Crow, who's been on the show before, has this great challenge where you write about your ancestors on Twitter, on Facebook, or blog, and remember your relatives. And it's a great way of telling their story and getting you to learn about and writing about genealogy. All right. Thank you so much, David. And we'll talk to you again soon. And coming up next, the iconic Robert Charles Anderson, the man behind the Great Migration Project, which is now celebrating 30 years. He's written a new book called Puritan Pedigrees, The Deep Roots of the Great Migration to New England. So why did your ancestors come over? Well, he's got the explanations for you. Bob, happy anniversary. 30 years of this project now, and it's still going. Yeah, thank you. It is definitely still going because we're not yet halfway done. There's a lot more to be done by myself and others. It's been a great ride and a lot longer than I expected. And and what a great service you have done to uh, so many Americans who have New England ancestry, no matter where they live. And there's 10 volumes of the original books, which go from what? They cover like 1620 to 1635. That's correct. And for those who are not familiar with the Great Migration Project, explain exactly how this is set up. Okay, so the great, first of all, define the Great Migration. The Great Migration is the immigration to New England, mostly from Old England, from 1620, which of course is the arrival of the Mayflower, until 1640 when that migration slowed down. There was a, a slow period from 1620 to 1630, and then it built up at faster and faster as conditions changed in England. And so that 1620 to 1635, which is 15 of the 20 years, is less than half of the total number of immigrants. Wow. So it was really meant as a, as a finding aid and reference. I got frustrated in my early days as a professional genealogist by the amount of time I had to spend to find what other people had already done, what was published, what other people had, had done, before I could even start doing new research. And so I wanted to build a reference work that would tell you what the state of research was on each of those about uh, 5,700 immigrant families from England in those 20 years. Wow. Um, so we, the, for the 10 volumes you spoke of covering those 15 years 
cover just sort of just short of 50 percent of those uh, 5,700 families. And I know as a, a New England descendant myself, actually as a New England native, and when I first got into genealogy and, and researching my family, these books were invaluable to me, and I know they are to so many other people, but you never anticipated 30 years of this, did you, Bob? Not at all. Uh, <laughs> I thought I would just spend a few years, three, four, five years, digging through the journals and the books and making lists and making little outlines, and uh, it just grew and grew and grew, and I think to the better. And as you say, yes, I'm always pleased when people say that they've found them useful. So I've made it almost halfway to my goal, and we're looking forward to the whole project being done sometime in the distant future. Right, right, right. And I know the last time we spoke, you were talking about somebody to work with you on this project to move it forward because, uh, well, you know, age catches up to all of us at some point. Although you you sound fantastic. (laughs) We we still need you to keep going because there's 55% of the names still to be had between 1636 and 1640. That's right. Well, I've still got some energy, and I'm, I'm still enjoying it, so I'm going to keep at it. You, you work on the treadmill a little bit? and Well, I kind <laughs> of sit down a lot. <laughs> well, I'm grateful, though, that you don't spend a lot of time shaving, because you've got the best beard in the business at this point. <laughs> Thank you. And that's really good. And and, and so the, these volumes of books, they're available all over the country, and, of course, through the New England Historic Genealogical Society, NEHGS, and their library has them all. What I like about this, Bob, first of all, I know it's kept you occupied the last few years. Right. And you explain basically why these people came over. And there were really different reasons throughout those 20 years, right? I mean, it almost changed constantly because by 1640, it was pretty much over. And there were reasons for that as well. That's right. Well, there's one general broad motivation with additional factors, but the precise um, application of that motivation changed, and that, that's very broad in general. It was religiously motivated, in my estimation, with some economic factors shifting that motivation. But the pressure in England that led people to to leave England to go to New England changed dramatically over those over those 20 years, from the latter years of the reign of King James through the first 15 years of the reign of King Charles and the changing nature of the Church of England and the people who ran that and became the stronger enemies of the Puritans. So it was a shifting anti-Puritan pressure coming from the Church of England and from the king that that pushed people out. Yeah, and it wasn't just the religious folks either, though, right? I mean, you've got the ordinary laymen who are part of this as well, because some of them needed jobs. Uh, Other than the fishermen, I don't see that. You have a population in that early New England that were not strictly non-Puritan, that did not come for religious reasons, but I think that was no more than 10 or 15 percent of the total. Really? And they were pretty much limited to some coastal fishing communities, such as Marblehead in Massachusetts, and then working on up what's now the New Hampshire and Maine coast. Mm -hmm. And they were a different population than the Puritans, but they were a clear minority. And the other 85% or whatever it is, and I, I include both in my books, I don't discriminate. Whatever their reason for coming, they're in my books if they landed in New England. But my fascination has become with not just the motivation, but and this is what the Puritan Pedigrees book is all about, but the network of these people that built over the years that, that led to their migration. It wasn't just that all of a sudden in 1632 they popped from being Church of England to being Puritan and 
came over. It was a process that had built up for decades. What, what does that mean, an intellectual network? It's not strictly a genealogical network, but it is still a strong, strong uh, connections between people. The most obvious example is in the universities, when you would have men who were converted and converted from Orthodox Church of England to a more radical reformist position, which is what the Puritans were, by their tutor at college, at university. And then that might be passed down from generations. You can build pedigrees of tutors converting students, and the students turn into tutors who convert students in other generations. So it grows. It grows Yeah. over time. And, and so it's not just that all of a sudden conditions changed in England and a whole bunch of people changed their mind all at once and jumped on ships. It's a, it's a deep process that took decades to build up. Really? So you're talking about going back into the 1500s quite a ways. Absolutely. I go back a full century from the time of the Great Migration to the beginning of the English Reformation under Henry VIII. Wow. And all over England and parts of Wales. Right. Did they communicate with each other? Was it, was it well organized centrally? Well, I, not centrally organized. It was a diffuse um, network. Um, and again, it was based to a great extent on the ministers, but also on well-educated laymen, many of them merchants, people who were prominent in their communities and had occasion to travel. And so they might be a merchant in a mercantile town in the hinterlands, but they might be elected to parliament and would end up in London and could network with both ministers and other laymen that way. Um, And the ministers moved around all over the country. They were professionals Mm. who sought, sought work where they could find it. And so the network, there are enemies of the Puritans who state quite explicitly that these people all seem to know each other and they all seem to know what each other are doing in other parts of the country. So there definitely was an underground network at work work for decades and decades. And it would, sometimes it would bubble to the surface and sometimes it it would stay below the surface. And it's those times when it stayed below the surface, obviously, that it's difficult to trace it through. There's a period from the end of the reign of Queen Elizabeth to the end of the reign of King James, when they were pretty much underground, and you just find little snippets, but if you work hard at it, you can trace these people over the 20 years or so of that. Well, it was quite a dangerous position, wasn't it, to be contrary to the Church of England in in many of those times? It was. It didn't, well, under Queen Mary, of course, when she tried to take, uh, reverse the Reformation and take it back to Catholicism, um, hundreds of people were burnt at the stake. And that continued to a certain extent under Queen Elizabeth, even though she was a Protestant, certainly not a Puritan, but a Protestant. She returned to the Church of England and broke the ties with Rome again. But she continued uh, to put people to the stake, really only the most prominent people, the most outrageous of those who offended against her sensibilities. But she burnt her own Archbishop of Canterbury at one point in 1556. So, uh, Wow. Yeah. What a terrible way to go. You know, but, you know, we think about our ancestors. I I think it's generally we like to think back the last few generations, three or four and all this. Mm -hmm. But boy, when you get back to this and there's so many of them out there to realize that, you know, any one of them is different. We're different people. Right. And these are these are the experiences that they went through. Uh, One of the most famous cases, of course, is uh, John Lothrop or Lathrop, who was imprisoned and then uh, was released briefly and took that opportunity to come to America as they were basically on his tail to put him back in prison. So it was just an ongoing uh, situation for so many of these people. Right. And it was not always the fear of capital punishment or even imprisonment, but it was 
an interruption with their life and an interruption with their ability to worship as they desired. That was the driving force was ratcheted up. Uh, it was the driving force in pushing many of them to, to go across the Atlantic, which was just, to me, it would have been a terrifying voyage in a little tiny wooden ship across that distance of water. So, Hey, I, I get terrified commuting to work. Are you kidding me? I mean, that, I, I can't even imagine doing that. Right. You know, I'm talking to Robert Charles Anderson. He is the author of the book Puritan Pedigrees. He's the man behind the incredible Great Migration Project that's such a great source to anybody of New England ancestry, which covers uh, people coming over from England 1620 to 1635. Now he's not only telling you where you can find your ancestors who came over between 1620 and 1640, now he's telling you why they came here. And uh, Bob, I only got the book like two days ago. So I really haven't had the chance to delve deeply into it. First of all, I can tell you it smells really good. Uh, it's a good smelling book. And, you know, anybody who really is in the libraries and all that, they, they you know, there, there's that scent. And I'm glad to have it. I don't know what chemical that is, but I'm, I'm all for it. And I hope you publish three more volumes. Okay. But let's talk about some of the people. I mean, I was looking through the index here and I was seeing several of my wife's ancestors mm-hmm. mentioned in there. Bachelor and Hussey and, uh, you know, some of these well-known early New England family names. And you kind of get deep in the weeds on these. And I guess some of them have to do with your own family. And my question for you is, first of all, where in the world have you had any time to research your own family for 30 years now? Well, I really haven't. Um, (laughs) I have these nice charts and I have a little list of dead ends that I wanted to research and I just really haven't had time to do much on them, except on those occasions when my ancestors happen to be the people that I have to write about for my books. Right. And that happens in, in one of the chapters in this book, the chapter on Thomas Norton and Walter Norton. The premise of the book is that the people who came over in the Great Migration in the 1620s to 1640s didn't just decide at the last minute to become Puritans and hop on the boat, that this great nationwide network of Puritans had been building since the beginning of the Reformation in the 1530s. Okay. And it's, the story I'm trying to tell is specifically how the people who came on the Great Migration, even if they didn't experience some of the events of the Reformation decades earlier, they would have had the opportunity to hear about those events from a grandfather or a great uncle or something of that sort. In other words, the network was building for the whole hundred years of the Reformation. And so a man, say, born in maybe 1610, who comes on a ship in 1635, would have an opportunity to hear from maybe his grandfather, who had been involved as a minister from the beginning of the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Wow. The 1550s. So it wasn't just that they were hearing vague stories that they were reading in books about the Puritans. They had stories right in their family about it. And so the one that relates to me specifically is this Thomas Norton, who was a young man under the reign of Henry VIII, just getting out of college. And then when Queen Mary came to the throne and tried to reverse the Reformation, he was a tutor to a family that was a Puritan, but a noble family that could resist Queen Mary, could survive through her persecutions. And then when Queen Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558, through his connections, Thomas Morton got a job as a secretary to the Privy Council, that is, to the ministers who were closest to Queen Elizabeth. And so in that role, he became a member of Parliament. And so for 20 years, 1560s and 70s, he was a leading member of Parliament who brought bills to the floor, who argued bills for his ministers and that sort of thing. So he became known as the Parliament man. But also in his spare time, he wrote a play. And it was the first play in blank verse in England. So it was, in a sense, an ancestor to Marlowe and Shakespeare and, and so on. 
And the impetus for that play in about 1560 was that when Queen Elizabeth came to the throne, everyone was concerned that she should marry and produce an heir. And so at the time, he was a young man in law school, essentially, in the so-called Inns of Court. And he and a colleague of his put together this play, but it was about the king producing an heir. And it was, <laughs> so it was a kind of a left-handed way of saying to Queen Elizabeth, you'd better marry and produce a male heir. And he also earned the title of Wreckmaster General. Of what? Wreckmaster General. That is, he interrogated these Catholics and sometimes ordered them to the wreck. So that's not something the terribly rack proud. Master General. I've rack never Master heard that. General. <laughs> he was the only one who ever held the title. That's not usually on occupation lists in the genealogy space. No, it, no, it isn't. And, you know? um, so I'm not necessarily proud of that aspect of him, but he was a very important man in that period. And he had about 15 children, and one of his younger ones was a Walter Norton who got involved in the army and fought in the Low Countries during the various wars, the religious wars on the continent. But he was a cousin to one of the leading ministers who came to New England. So they came together to Charlestown in 1630 with his cousin Increase Noel. And Increase Noel was the founder of the town, and he brought Walter Norton over, I believe, as a military man to help in the defense of the colony, huh. just as the pilgrims brought Miles Standish. Miles Standish, right, yeah. Right. So he was the Miles Standish of Charlestown, Massachusetts, if you will. But then he, unfortunately, tried to found the town of York, Maine, but he got involved in some coastal trading, ended up down in the Connecticut shore, and he and his crew got killed by the Pequot Indians, which was one of the distal causes of the Pequot War. And fortunately for me, he left behind a daughter who married and had descendants and so on. Uh -huh. So that's a case where I've spent a lot of time for this book researching not just the genealogy, but the biography of that ancestor. Sure. And, and that's yours in particular. Isn't that the joy right. of writing your own book? You could put yep. it in anything you want. That's right. But there are a lot of other ancestors of other people in here as well that you've done yes. some work on. How many overall would you say that you've written a bio on? Um, specifically a bio on a couple of dozen, maybe. You know, we know that the ministers came over for religious reasons, but I've tried to dig out information on the laymen and laywomen as well, who were not university trained, were not ministers, but mm -hmm. still the migration for them was still a religious migration. And an example of that is a man named Isaac Heath, who came to Roxbury, Massachusetts. And he lived in the village of Ware in Hertfordshire, just north of London. And he got mixed up with a minister called Charles Chauncey, who came some years later after Isaac Heath did. But one of the most pleasant bits of research I did for this book was to dig into the so-called state papers, the official records of the king and, and his ministers. I finally hired a researcher in Kew Gardens in the official records. Wow. Essentially, the royal ministers brought in Charles Chauncey and asked him a whole series of questions. And in one of the questions, he said, yes, that my church warden, Isaac Heath, was one who assisted me and so on in these Puritan activities and so on. And so it wasn't just that Charles Chauncey, as a minister, a university-educated minister, who knew his theology inside and out, and so you just build these networks outward. But the idea is to include not just the ministers, but the laymen as well, who were not the ones who would be burned at the stake or even imprisoned, but they would be brought before the church courts, the ecclesiastical courts, and excommunicated or forced to, in public, give a strong penance, which could be a humiliating experience. Sure. And uh, so it was that process amongst the laymen that drove the vast majority of the migration. 
He's Robert Charles Anderson. He is the writer of Puritan Pedigrees, The Deep Roots of the Great Migration to New England. If you're a Boston listener, you can meet him on Saturday, January 26th at 3.30 at the New England Historic Genealogical Society on Newbury Street. And you've got uh, English tours also uh, coming up here, Bob. Right. I've done five tours now, starting back as early as 2008, sort of based on the books, English tours to locations where large numbers of immigrants arose. Of course, we're coming up here 2020 on the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower. And so we did a tour this last August to Nottinghamshire, to the places like Scrooby and Osterfield and Babworth, the origin of the so-called Scrooby congregation that included William Brewster and William Bradford. But then, of course, once they had to leave England in 1607 and 08, they went first to Amsterdam and then to Leiden and became the Leiden Congregation. And so in June of this year, we'll be doing a tour to Leiden, Amsterdam, and some other locations that are relevant to that part of the migration. And then we have two more that are in the planning stage in 2020 and 2021 that will go to places along the English Channel as the Mayflower made its way west to sea. And, of course, people can find out more about that at AmericanAncestors.org. Robert Charles Anderson, thank you so much for your time. Great chatting with you again and getting caught up. Great. Thank you. All right. We're going to talk preservation with Tom Perry is on the line with us uh, once again. How are you, Tommy? I'm super duper for your loved ones, whether it's your wife or your mother or grandmother. Someplace you've got some old videos laying around that was maybe when they were on a high school team or swim team or maybe they rode horses in competition, whatever. And you know where that old dusty video is. Go get it. Bring it into your local transfer center. Get a DVD made. Put it in a nice library case. Put a cool cover with some photo collages on the front of it. And you'll have a gift that will get you a lot more than candy. <laughs> okay. That's good. Now, of course, when I hear this, I'm thinking, well, people need some video skills, right? Well, not necessarily, because a lot of people just have this stuff laying around. In fact, we had somebody bring in some old basketball films were actually shot in film at their high school that one of their old coaches had passed away. And his wife said, hey, I've got all these old films. You want any? And they divvied them up. And they went and got some pictures of the woman's team and had it transferred and gave it to their wife as a gift. And it shows you're interested in their before-you life also, and it brings back really cool memories that you can share with your other kids at maybe that same age when your wife was, you know, the basketball star or something. Well, that's true. I mean, you could just do it in raw video as well, and I would imagine there are digitizers who can make something a little more sophisticated than that if they so chose, right? In fact, computers for video gaming have brought down a lot of prices because of processors, but when you take that technology and move it into preservation, it is seamless and it's awesome. So you can get a real good computer that you can use for editing for like under $1,000, and you can take this video that somebody digitizes for you, put it in there, and in 30 minutes, maybe an hour, one night after she's gone to bed, go through and edit it, put some cool titles on it. It's not that hard, and a lot of software is free or very inexpensive, but the prices of computers have come way down. There's one out there right now that's called an ROGSTRIXGL12, which is $1,000. <laughs> and I didn't have this kind of processing power with my first system, which was $30,000 back in the day. Isn't that amazing? I have a son who works in L.A., and he's in the film industry, and he does all this editing in his bedroom. 
Yeah, it's an amazing thing now where we are as far as a video goes and how much easier it is to do. And you know what's interesting, too, Tom, is now how this whole idea of vertical videos is becoming much more commonplace. Don't get me started on that. Oh, I know. You would think by now that everybody would know that when you shoot a video, you do it horizontally with your phone. But still, it seems like everybody's still doing it vertically. And now we're seeing professionals say, okay. If you're still going to do it vertically, then we're going to shoot vertically. <laughs> and we're seeing all kinds of uh, film trailers and things being done with vertical videos, which is crazy to me. In fact, it's so funny. Everybody's looking at the end content. It used to be no matter what you shot, no matter what you did, you went home and watched it on a television, which is obviously horizontal. But now, as you mentioned, more and more people basically live on their phone. They watch videos on their phone. They chat on their phone. They do everything on their phone. They hardly even use a TV anymore. And it's just so hard to take that iPhone or that Android of yours that's vertical and turn it horizontal. It takes so much work. <laughs> but now they're making you videos, even Netflix is doing it, where you can watch trailers in the vertical mode. They are just making it so much easier on your wrist. I know. <laughs> You're absolutely right. In fact, there was a story I read this past week where they say there's a new thing out called selfie wrist. It's almost like carpal tunnel syndrome from people taking so many selfies that there's now a new diagnosis for selfie wrist. you got to put the phone down. That's crazy. And, uh, Tom, we were just talking a little bit ago about video editing. And I know in the winter, this is a great time because you're not having to spend a lot of time outdoors taking care of the yard and all that. So you can really delve into new things at this time of year. And uh, you talked about the cost of video editing dropping, I mean, ridiculously, from 33 thousand for a setup when you first got going to about a thousand dollars today and there's not just one version of this at that cheap price we'll talk about apple and we'll also talk about windows computers because i know there's people that love and hate each other but so this one is really really good if you're into wanting to get a computer for your family where you can use it for business where you can use it for your video editing your wife can use it for her hobbies or whatever she does with her business or her home life you can also have one that your kids can game on so the whole family can use it so it's an investment not just for you but for the whole family to enjoy and one of my favorite ones is the apple 27 inch imac it's all one big piece it's not made to be portable, but I take mine with me all the time. If I go on the road or something, I just put it in the back of the van or the Suburban and take off with it. And it's really great because obviously it's got a 27-inch screen, which is amazing. It's really light. It has 64 gigabytes of RAM. It has a really fast processing card. So when you're looking at video and stuff, you don't have to wait for it to load. It's got 8 gigabytes of VRAM. And so like 99% of the people out there... They will love this program. It comes with iMovie. It comes with iPhoto. Wow. It comes with stuff already built right into it that's ready to rock and roll. And it retails for about $1,800. And you can go to your local Apple dealer and usually get it down a little bit cheaper or find somebody that's upgraded to the latest one and get one that's maybe a year old that's still awesome and get it for half that price. Wow. And, and that's for Apple, right? Right, that's Apple, and you buy that, you don't need anything else. It has a keyboard, it has a mouse, it has a speakers built in, it has a disk drive built in. It's like ready to rock and roll, but in the future, if you want to do more and expand, it does allow you to do that also. So if you're an Apple person, this is the way to go. And then when you want to get iPhoto and add these other things, it's free because it's built right in. You don't have to worry about buying them. Perfect. Who would have thought of that? Okay, then if you're a Windows person, how would you do this? 
Okay, the best one I would get into, which we kind of mentioned a little bit, it's the best workstation for editors, and it has incredible graphics cards for gaming. Your kids are going to love it, not worry about ping time. It's made by Asus, which is A-S-U-S, and it's called the ROG Strix, S-T-R-I-X-G-L-1-2, and it's amazing. It has an 8-core processor. It has the Intel Core 19 card in it, so it's really, really fast. It has 11 gigabytes of VRAM. And this one, like I mentioned, is only $1,000, and it is great for gamers. And it looks really cool. It's got this transparent side on it, so you can see all these LEDs flashing and lights coming on. And it's kind of a, a piece of art inside your house, too. It's really, really cool. I have seen those. They are absolutely amazing. And I should mention, as you go through all these uh, technical things, Tom, that when the podcast version of this show comes out about a week after the radio broadcast, you can go to the transcript and all the information that Tom is sharing right there is available for you so if you want to look into these it's really easy to get it done oh it is it makes it really nice i have people call me all the time and say thank you so much for the transcripts i could go back and read what you were saying and another thing i suggest people do when you're ready to buy or if you're just kind of curious go to videomaker.com they have all kinds of cool stuff from the very beginners all the way to the seasoned professionals. It's a great magazine to subscribe to, and their website's totally free. All right, Tom. Always great to talk to you, and we'll chat at you again next week. My pleasure. Hey, we are out of here, and uh, thanks so much for joining us again this week. Hope you have some amazing discoveries in your own family history research this coming week. Check out ExtremeGenes.com to find all kinds of great stories, and don't forget to subscribe to our weekly genie newsletter at ExtremeGenes.com. Talk to you next week, and remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.